Well, a damp good morning to you. Thank you for not allowing the rain to deter you. It slows us down a little bit, but here we are. Continuing this morning in our study in Matthew, we'll be finishing chapter 9. And remember the structure. Matthew is writing a collage. He's presenting a collage. He's gathering material experiences, words, deeds of Jesus' life. And he's assembling them together, not in a time frame as we would do, a biography that we would do. It would be a linear day one, day two, day three. But he's taking the aspects and the activities of Jesus' life and putting them together in such a way that he's presenting a picture of God's Messiah as Jesus, as the one who has come to fulfill God's promise in Genesis 3.15. Remember the seed of the woman. And there will be enmity between you and her seed. Remember talking to the enemy. And then he will crush you or bruise you as to your heel. But the seed of the woman will crush or bruise the enemy as to his head or his authority. And we saw that last week. And so we see this promise being acted out, if you would, being lived out in Jesus. And it's very important to make sure that when we look at this, and when we're especially, well, when we're listening to the sermons of Jesus, and we're looking at the activities of Jesus, that we not see this just as this is something Jesus did, but this is a revelation of what Genesis one twenty six is to be in humanity. This is a revelation. This is the picture of what Genesis one twenty six is to be. Let us make man in our image, because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Remember where that's written? In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the Im- image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the image of God again. And so when we're looking at the person and work of Christ, we are looking at the image of God, and a little differently than we would look at ourselves as God's images, because in Christ, he not only lives out the image But living it out allows him to be the redeemer of his people. So in his redemptive work at the cross, we are now made into the image of God. And so we are made in the image of God where Christ is the image of God. And so as we look at the Gospels, we're not only looking at what Jesus did, but we're looking at who we are to be. In Christ. We're looking at our lives that potentially, except for the redemptive work, obviously, we're not going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. But when we look at his life, when we look at his deeds, when we look at his attitude, his motives, when we look at the source of his empowerment by the Spirit, 
we are seeing who we are to be having been saved into the kingdom of God. And so, let us make sure that when we see Jesus walking on water, when we see him healing people, when we see him rebuking winds and waves, actually there may be these kinds of physical activities within the church. And there have been these kinds of miracles within the church, and they still continue today. They haven't ceased. Because God is the same today, tomorrow, yesterday. He's the same. But mostly what we're seeing here, obviously, these are pictures of God's redeeming work by the Spirit to go into the world and to dismantle the works of the devil as a result of the dismantling work of Christ, we are now to go into the world and to apply the good of the dismantling work of Christ. We are now to apply that in our own person, in our own personal walk in obedience, and in our own activities flowing out of us as we impact the kingdom of Satan as members of the kingdom of God. And so we are now seeing in our own lives, in our own testimonies, and in our own movement evangelistically and teaching and ministering ways, we are seeing Satan's kingdom being dismantled. Amen? Amen? We're seeing that. That's what we are seeing. And so, this morning we're continuing in these two chapters, 8 and 9. And remember, Matthew has presented three sets of miracles. The first set of three miracles and a teaching. The second set of three miracles and a teaching. And then the third set is really four miracles, one within the first. And then, not just a teaching necessarily, but kind of an explanation or an application. So, let's see what we have here. This is the last set of the four miracles where Matthew continues to show how the works of Jesus, how the works of Jesus, showing that his works are destroying the work of the enemy. Remember what 1 John 3, 8 says, the second part of that verse. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. What purpose? To destroy the works of Satan. Let's remember that verse. 1 John 3, 8 is a good and important verse. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. To what? Destroy the works of Satan. And so, this is what we're seeing in these sets of miracles. And this is what we'll be seeing this morning in this last set. So, let's read the first miracle. The first and second miracles in verses 18 to 26. There are two miracles in this particular section. While Jesus was saying these things to them... Behold, now he's speaking, he's speaking, he's ministering. Behold, a ruler came to him and knelt before him. Now, a ruler, this was a man who was probably an administrative, uh, had administrative function within the synagogue. He dealt with the worship activities, he dealt with the structure, he just dealt with the administrative functions of the local synagogue. He came in and knelt before him. Now, let me stop a second. Jesus is antagonizing the religious leaders. Now, you say, well, he's antagonizing. Let me say this. Jesus came to antagonize. All right? 
but he came to antagonize using the truth. He didn't tippy-toe around and was trying to be very careful about people's feelings or opinions. He came to speak the truth in love and in power and in anger. Wait until we get to chapter 23. So we have to be very careful how we analyze and what we think of particular gospel presentations. We have to be very careful. The word grace does not always mean sweet and kind and good and gentle, whatever. The word grace has a lot more to it. The word grace has to do with the work of God proclaiming himself through his word in the way that he chooses to do it. And so Jesus actually has come to antagonize, to disrupt, to churn up, to reveal. And so here's a man kneeling before him. Look at the work of God in this Jewish leader. Can you imagine him doing this knowing that the other leaders are looking at him? Look at this. How can he be such a turncoat? But you see, there's something motivating this man which is greater than his concern for the opinions of his comrades, his fellow religious leaders. My daughter has just died. Isn't it interesting when life grips us by the throat, our theology and our perspective of the world and others changes. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed it? My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now we're moving toward the miracle here. They're going down the road. Now get this, Jairus, well that's his name, you see that in Luke. Jairus is panting here. My daughter is on the verge of death. She's died. Come and lay your hands on her. My daughter is dying. She's dead. We need to get there. We need to get Jesus to these people. We need to preach the gospel. We need to make sure. We need to. We, 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 we. But you see, God has an agenda. And as they're going along... Some woman gets in the way. Now, I'm not saying that because it's a woman, but it is a woman in this case. I'm not saying it because it's a woman, but it is a woman in this case. So, you know, let's be realistic. God uses a woman. He brings a woman in here. Somebody has to bring sense to these guys, right? We have a whole crew right up at this table here. <laughs> And Jesus rose, and but behold, a woman. But she had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. He came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And if you want the larger story, you go to Luke. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I would be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter. You know, ch 
just that comment from a Jewish rabbi to a woman elevates women from a very low place to equality with men as far as standing and love and acceptance by God is concerned. Just that one term, daughter, sons of God, daughter, same level of love and acceptance. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. And he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he threw them out. Don't you love the grace of God? Let's make sure. I I don't want to deviate too much from this. I do want to, but, and I'm going to. It's an interesting comment. I think we'll see it. Jesus ministers and he's antagonizing these Pharisees and his disciples say, don't you know you're getting these people upset? Let's be more concerned about doing it God's way and content than doing it worried about the reception on the other side. God is really good about taking care of the reception. He puts them outside. Oh, how unkind. How unloving. Oh, how, how, how demanding of him. He throws them out. Get out. Get out of the room. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ we're talking about. This is not the modern gospel. This is not the modern disposition of being sweet to everybody. This is the gospel of Christ. I dare say that some of the sermons that Jesus preached would not be allowed in our churches today. He'd be run out of town just as he was in those days. Some of the illustrations that he gave would not be accepted today. You're alienating people. You're separating. You're making it difficult for people to receive Christ. No, he's tearing down the works of Satan so people will be able to receive Christ. We need to readjust and relook at Jesus himself. And they laughed at him, but when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her hand. The girl arose and a report of this went through all the district. What does Jairus feel when we have a need, have need, can you come pray? And we're going that way, and somebody interferes, and Jesus stops. What must this grieving, fearful father thought? What's wrong with Jesus? I mean, I know this lady has a problem, but my problem eclipses hers by a million. I mean, I know she's sick, but, you know, that's okay. Let let, let, her just be alone. I have a bigger problem here. And you see, isn't it interesting that Jesus does not evaluate levels of problems and then deals with them according to particular levels? But he takes all the issues of our life and places them within the same context. I am the Lord of life. And so that speaks to me. 
when I have somewhere to go and I've got to get there, whatever, and, I, and it's necessary, I don't want anything to get in my way. Anybody else like that? I don't want anything to get in my way. And when it does, all of a sudden my flesh rises up and I begin to say to the Lord, come on, Lord, don't you know I have to get there? Do you hear yourself? Anybody ever? Is anybody like me in this? I know you don't want to admit you're like I am, but, but, but is there anybody like I am in this? Let's remember this. Jesus is able to overcome and to minister in every situation. Amen? It's just a lack of trust in me. And we're growing in trusting him. And so, her condition has kept her un- ritually unclean. She has a blood issue. And so she can't come into the presence of God. We saw that before with a leper. And so, they laughed at him. When Jairus got there, they laughed at him. The world still laughs. And what does Jesus do? He puts them out. And when he rise- raises her from the dead, is this a resurrection? Or is it a revivification? A resuscitation. Which one is it? There's a difference. It's not a resurrection. Jesus raises her from the dead, but it's not a resurrection. It's a bringing her back to the same place where she was before. That's not what a resurrection is. Jesus did not rise to go back to the same place he was before. He rose with a glorified body. The resurrection is a coming, I'm sorry, a raising of our bodies as a brand new glorified body. It's not bringing us back to the same place. A resurrection is bringing us into the presence of God as God's glorified people to live before his presence without any sin or degradation or anything of the fall forever. That's a resurrection. And so, but this is a picture of the resurrection. And so, it's only one of three in the New Testament that foreshadow Jesus' work of the resurrection. It's this one. Remember the son of the widow of Nain, Jesus, the, the boy is on, they're going through the town, and, and the coffin is there, and Jesus walks up and touches it and raises the boy from the dead. And, of course, the most obvious one and the most applauded one, and maybe the most clearly obvious of Jesus' power is Lazarus in John 11. You see, Jesus had not, has not come to make our lives better. This is a point of Jesus did not come just to make us go, able to go back into the world and be better people. Jesus came to give us new life, his own life. Not a better life in the worldly sense, but a new life in the godly sense. Which, when we have new life, our lives then are better. But the emphasis is not improving us. The emphasis is totally changing us and giving us a new life. Correct? I know there is sometimes a, a thought here, well, when I'm saved, I am better. Obviously, I am. But the purpose here, I am only better and walking and working in God's will because I have been made new. The third miracle, so there are two in there. The third miracle, verses 27 to 31. And as Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to him, said that, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you really think I can open your eyes? 
And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. According to your faith, be done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And so after leaving the Jairus' house, two blind men come to him, and they call out to him, Have mercy upon us, son of David. Now, Matthew uses this title, son of David, ten times. You remember where the first one is? In the introduction, Matthew 1.1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember that. Son of David is a messianic title. He begins his presentation of the gospel of the person of Christ to say that Jesus is the Messiah by identifying him in the very first verse of the first chapter as son of David. What does this have to do with? This is a title that was that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, when David says, I want to build a house for God. And the Lord says, hey, you can't build a house for me, but I'm going to build the house. And here's what he says. When your days, the Lord is speaking to David, when your days are filled, fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your seed. Now, I know your Bible says descendants. I think that's a terrible, terrible uh, uh, translation of the word Z-E-R-A. The word Z-E-R-A in the Hebrew means seed. It certainly does have to do with descendants. But I like to retain the word seed because it reminds me of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Her seed will bruise you as to your head. Remember that? And so I don't like the word use there, seed, and then everywhere else, descendants. I would rather, and King James does a much better job in this than many others, the seed, the seed, the seed. And if you travel it through, there's a real line of uh, continuity from the Old Testament all the way through. So when your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body, one who will be a physical descendant of David, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a messianic title, son of David. And this, when they call out son of David, the Pharisees are bristling. Don't call this man the Messiah. You see? You can feel it in them. It's just not a nice title. It is a title which is only can be correctly given to one person. That man whom God has raised up as a physical seed or descendant of David has raised up and has anointed and has appointed, etc., to be the one who will be the Lamb of God who will die for the sin of the world so that his people may be freed from Satan's tyranny and be brought into the kingdom of God through the new birth by the Spirit. So although this promise was provisionally fulfilled in Solomon, this is Solomon is the immediate um, uh, fulfillment of this, at least to some extent, because you remember Solomon really didn't do well in the second half of his life, if you would. It's a provisionally fulfilled in Solomon. It is fulfilled completely in Jesus. He is the one whom God is talking about. And when Jesus comes, he will be the seed his throne will be on the, uh, over the kingdom of God forever, and he will build God's house. What is God's house? What is the house of God that he will build? Remember 1 Peter three, 2, the church. He is going to build the house, the church, and we see that happen. 
Jesus asked if they believe, and they said, yes, Lord. They do believe, and he healed their eyes. Again, what is that a, what is that a indication of? For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. To do what? To destroy the works of the enemy. Remember that? Where is that from? 1 John 3.8, the second part of the verse, 3.8 if you would be. And so he's, he's opening eyes. What is this indicative of spiritually? What is that indicative of? What does 2 Corinthians 4, 4 say? We must know these verses. We must know these verses. In whose case, talking about the unbeliever, in whose case the God of this world has what? Blinded the eyes of the unbelievers that they may not see that they may not see the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Image again. You see 126 of Genesis. And so Satan has blinded every single person's eyes spiritually to the revelation, to the true identity and work of Christ. Every person is born spiritually blind. And because of that, how can a blind person look to Jesus? How can a blind person look to Jesus? Can he? Can a blind person look to Jesus to be saved? No. No. Can a deaf person hear the call of the gospel? No. Can a dead person get out of the coffin and search for Jesus. Can they? No. What has to happen? The Holy Spirit must impact the person. And in doing so, he opens the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, and he gives life so that that person now may see, may hear, may come to life, and in doing so, may receive Christ by faith. You see, faith is not our ability to be born again. Faith is our response to the Holy Spirit birthing us into the kingdom. So when we read Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 especially, we see it is the work of the Spirit. I will put my Spirit in them. Jesus said, you must be born again. And when that happens, the person is the heart of stone. Stones are dead. They're deaf. They're blind. He gives us a new heart. And as a result of the new heart, then it says, then they will, whatever. Then they will. Then they will. Only after the heart has been changed. Then my response is yes. I receive Christ, not because I have searched for him, but because he has found me because I was in Christ before the foundation of the world and the heart and mind of God. Remember that in Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, and God sent the Holy Spirit into the world to gather these people whom he has known forever, 
have always been in his intention and decree. And he is gathering them together. How? By going and opening their hearts and their minds and breaking Satan's ability to blind them and breaking Satan's authority over them to keep them bound to his will and freeing us. So now, for the first time, I have the ability and I have the desire to receive Christ. Before that, I don't have it. Before that, I don't have it. Aren't you glad this is the way it is? None of us would have sought for Christ on our own. Jesus says, I've come for all those whom the Father has given me. Well, there's so much in John. Let's go on. Verses 32 to 34, the fourth miracle. And as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute, couldn't talk, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee says, ah, this is a trick. He's casting out Satan by Satan, you know. He's restoring speech. He's restored a walk. He's restored eyes. He's restoring ears. He's restoring speech. All of this has to do with our spiritual need. These miracles of Jesus opening the eyes of the blind and giving speech to the mute were in keeping with the messianic uh, proclamation. L- listen to these words in Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. And remember, Jesus is opening eyes. He's opening uh, men's mouths to be able to speak. Say to those who are anxious of heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. You see, he will save you then. The Holy Spirit will work then. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And so when these people see these miracles, if they have any spiritual ability or uh, knowledge or whatever at all, they will see the messianic prophecies coming to fruition right before their eyes. This man, this prophet, this rabbi, whoever he is, this son of David, we don't know for sure who he is, but could this be the Messiah? Because everything that he is saying and everything that he does to substantiate the truth of what he said is being authenticated through his deeds. This is, these are the kinds of things that God in his word in the, in the Old Testament said, this is the, these are the kinds of ministries that the Messiah will fulfill. Could this be the one? Could this be the one? You see, again, this miracle not only, these miracles were not only fulfilling the promise of the seed of the woman, they are also fulfilling the prediction that I will put enmity between your seed and his seed. Why? Because when he's doing these miracles, the enmity of the Pharisees is inflamed. And Satan is using the religious leaders to begin to attack the work of the Messiah. Don't be surprised when you're minding your own business. Some of us mind our own business, Jay, and people attack us. And you're minding your own business. And all of a sudden, and you're living, though, godly and righteously. 
people in the office are chuckling about, you know, Trump is a or Hillary Clinton is a and some are saying same-sex marriages or whatever, and they're making fun of that and whatever, and they're doing all of these things. Or they're talking about how horrible it is to tear down the monuments, thank God they did it, or it's terrible, whatever, whichever sides. And all of this world of stuff is going on, and you're not participating in it. Because you're not called to be embroiled in the issues of the world this way. And they see you. And they begin to wonder, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And they begin to talk to you and begin to ask you. And you share carefully. And they begin to dislike you and talk about you. I know that's happened, literally it's happened to me where, you know, you're trying, hmm. Now, I think maybe too often this happened to me, maybe because I wasn't saying it in the Holy Spirit way. I don't know. We have to be careful. We do not have to get on our soapboxes and proclaim Christ in an obnoxious way. We have to do it in a godly way. And the most powerful way of proclaiming Christ is living righteously. Living righteously. Be careful about these things. Be careful. It is so easy to begin to be caught up in the swirl and sucked in to the world's activities. Be careful. You know, I have an opinion about the monuments. I have opinions. I'm not going to share them with you. I may think this is the greatest thing that ever happened. They tore these offensive demons down. Or I may think it's a crazy thing that they've all now just created all kinds of animosity. That what I don't, you know, I have opinions. But we need to be careful that these issues are not to pollute the gospel. And to pollute us, we have to be careful. I have to be careful. And so, I'm sorry. Here's what I do. I'm, I'm sorry to say this, because maybe many of you would disagree. I just turn off the news. I'm not going to listen to all this stuff. I'm not going to allow it to enter my spirit. Now, some would agree, some would But that's for me. I'm not telling you to turn off your radios or your TVs. I'm just not wanting it to pollute me. And you may say, well, you need to be better than that. Yes, you're probably right. Verse 35, Matthew summarizes what he's just said in chapters 8 and 9. He just summarizes it. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You probably remember that from chapter 4, verse 23. It's almost identical wording. And perhaps it, maybe it is. I didn't look at every word, but it's just about the same kind of statement. He gives a statement in there about Jesus' messianic authority. In verses 36 to 38, it can, I think, end this chapter or introduce the next chapter. It does introduce chapter 10, but it can be either at the end of chapter 9, I think, or at the beginning of chapter 10. And, and it's an introduction. I think it's a bridge. Introducing the mission of the church or the mission of the kingdom. We have seen now the character of the kingdom in chapters 5 to 7. We've seen the authority of the kingdom in chapters 8 and 9. And now we're going to begin to be introduced to the mission of the kingdom in chapter 10. Got it? The, the character of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. The authority of the kingdom, 8 and 9. 
And now the mission of the kingdom, which will be chapter 10. That might help in, in you identifying what's really happening. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Remember this term, sheep without a shepherd. Matthew uses it specifically. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So now Matthew has done what I've said, the character and the authority of the kingdom, and he's about to introduce, or he is introducing the mission of the kingdom. After ministering in verse 36 to so many needy people, Jesus saw that they were in great danger from the predators because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now all of us know how much sheep know what to do, how intelligent they are and how uh, ability to fight off enemy. They're stupid. Now, they're stupid. Spiritually, sheep are stupid. They're ignorant. Friends, we're the sheep. No, really. Listen. In ourselves, in ourselves, we're stupid. We're ignorant of Satan's devices. We're ignorant of what was happening in the world, in ourselves. We don't know how to defend ourselves. We don't know how to walk. We don't know how to proceed. We don't have anything indigenously in us until the Holy Spirit resides in us and then he becomes our everything. And so 1 Peter 5, 8 says what? Be sober-minded. Why? Because there's an enemy out there, an adversary, who prowls about as if he was a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have to identify and acknowledge our ignorance. And because of our ignorance, this should indicate to us or prove to us how much we need to be in the Word of God and in prayer and in the assembling of the believers when God gives the opportunity. I've said it, and I'll say it until I have no more breath. This room, whether Bill's teaching, I'm teaching, Eric's teaching, Ronald's teaching, whoever's teaching, Frank is taught, this room should be filled every Sunday morning. You know why? Because we need to have a respectful fear of the ability of the enemy. We prayed for children this morning. We prayed for children. My concern is this. How many parents are raising their kids today who are being inundated and bombarded and being educated in the filth, in the anti-Christ philosophy of this world more than we have ever seen before? And yet, parents believe that they don't have to make an emphasis of the word as much as they make an emphasis in the education of their children. There should be parents in this room lined up against the wall, learning the word, being armed and ready to defeat the work of the enemy in their children's lives. This room should be crammed, filled with parents. Because once in a while and reading a Bible story and having a few devotions is wonderful. But it's not the whole way of God protecting and providing for his people. It's just not. 
and say, people say, well, why am I so preoccupied with this? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I am consumed with this concern in this church. Consumed with it. Every day, kids are coming home and they taught me this and they taught me When my grandchildren went to Lusha, there were sexually impure people teaching. And not only teaching, but promoting their way of life as normal. And not only acceptable, but something that also should be considered and pursued. And children hear this in and out and all day long and every day. That just being one of many things. They need to be in these rooms and the parents need to be in these rooms hearing the truth because it is only the knowledge of the truth that we and our children are set and kept free. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Let me read this from Ezekiel. This is the reference, sheep without a shepherd. This is the reference. Listen to this from Ezekiel 34, 1 through 16. And the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. How many leaders in the church God is against when they don't preach, live the word of God the way God gives it to us. Compromising, changing, conforming the word to the culture. How many pastors, how many leaders will stand before a holy God one day and be severely rebuked by this God who said, you change my word. I don't want to be in that company. And I determine in faith in Christ, I am not going to be in the company. And I don't want you to be in that company. People say, why do we get so riled up? Listen to these words. And say to them, even to the shepherds, thus saith the Lord, our shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. You do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The stayed you have not brought back. The, uh, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They were wounded and wandered all over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth and none to search or seek for them. You see? And Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. This is where he's coming from. Listen to this. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep had become a prey and my sheep had become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd because my sheep have not been, have, because, sorry, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from the mouths that they may not be food for them. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I myself, this is Yahweh, 
I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into the own, their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountains uh, heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they will shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they will feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the state, and I will build up the injured, bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat, and the strong. I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. Whew. This is a rebuke. So Jesus in John 10 Stands and he says what? I am the good shepherd. <gasps> he is saying that he is the one who fulfills Ezekiel 34. In verses 35 to 38, I'm not going to read them. Jesus is sending now his disciples into the field to gather God's people. He is preparing them for the day that he, the good shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, will shepherd his people through his disciples as they minister in God's field and pray for more workers in God's field. We are now the shepherds. Each one of us shepherding one another. Leaders shepherding the flock. Each one of us caring for one another. Next week, we'll get into the kingdom uh, agenda. Thank you.